morning, everyone. Thanks for joining. I have Hannah Kirshner here. Uh, she is in the deep mountains of Ishikawa Prefecture, and we're going to talk about her upcoming amazing book talking about artisans, Japanese traditional culture, and rural life. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You can find out more information about me at inboundambassador.com and have a look at buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh if you want some bonus material and to support the work that I'm doing. Hi everyone, good morning. Thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live number 194. Next week, we are celebrating the 200th. I'm so happy you could join us today, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Yeah, I, I've warned you before we started that I do not think we can get enough of your book topics in today. And I'm hoping that when your book is released at the end of next month, that you'll join us again and give us more insights. Is that okay? That would be fun. Yay. But um, yeah, th I think that there are some some unifying themes, even if I cover a lot in the book. So yeah, hopefully definitely. we'll be able to cover some of that today. Definitely. And you kind of living your life between New York and Ishikawa, the countryside in Japan, half and half. And now you're in Ishikawa today. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's um, over the course of writing the book. And then afterwards, my life has shifted more and more towards staying here in Yamanaka in Ishikawa Prefecture. So well, for people who are listening from yeah. not within Japan, um, maybe it's good to explain where Ishikawa is. Yes, that it's please. on the western side of Japan, along the Sea of Japan. Um, by train, it's about three hours from Tokyo or two hours from Kyoto. Um, and fairly, fairly isolated, even though uh, that accessibility by, by train may not make it sound isolated to Americans. It is definitely considered a much more rural part of the country. Yeah. The way that you ended up in that location is really interesting. Um, it was a house party in New York. Is that right? And you had a special guest who brought some amazing sake. And you tell us the story. This is a great sure, story. Sure, sure. So, well, so the first time I came to Japan was actually a decade before that. Um, it was just after college, and I was a bike racer at the time. And I went and stayed in this bike messenger house in Kyoto for a month. And so it was one of my friends from that time. We stayed in touch over the years. I came back to Japan a few times. He came to the U.S. a few times, and he said he emailed me and he said he'd been telling me for years about this magical mountain town in Ishikawa called Yamanaka that he just thought I would fall in love with and I was like yeah yeah sure but like I'm busy I'm living in New York now I've got a job as a food stylist um there was just lots going on so um this magical mountain town s sounded wonderful but I wasn't sure exactly when or how I'd get there so he says well the bar owner, also in his early 30s from this town, he, he really, he's passionate about sake and he really wants to come to New York, so can you host him? Meanwhile, he told uh, Shimoki-san, the bartender, oh, my friend in New York really wants to meet you, so can you go to New York? Um, but it worked out. Um, uh, Shimoki-san came to New York. My husband is Japanese at the time. We were not yet married, but um, that helped with it translation issues because my Japanese especially then was not so great um, 
and Shimoki came and I happened to have a dinner party planned for during that time. And so he had brought an entire suitcase full of sake, like maybe six of the large ishobin, the big bottles, and like another half a dozen small bottles. He'd brought like six different types of glassware from his bar. And then he puts on his his bar uniform, including one of those aprons, you know, the sort of indigo blue with the printed white graphics and the like orange and white tie apron tie and so he puts that on and you know it's our dinner party because it was like having our own private sake sommelier and he's so expressive that like even though most of my guests didn't speak Japanese like that it was conveyed to them <laughs> anyway and I was like that apron is so cool how do I get one of those and he said well you have to come work in my bar I said okay and he said well you have to come for two months I said okay so you know I don't know if it was a serious offer in that moment, but it very quickly became a real plan. And within a few months, I was in Yamanaka, um, which is a very small town, and um, living across the street from his Nihonshu bar, sake bar, and working there a few nights a week, which ended up being this um, amazing entry point into the culture of Yamanaka I was thinking about it in terms of an opportunity to learn about food and food culture, but it was ended up being so much more. Wonderful. I love that story and all the connections that you were making. Um, originally coming to Japan as a cyclist and uh, you were talking about uh, trying to get into like the professional cycle circle, cir cir circuit, cycle circuit. And uh, it was only, it was so low paid. And then you started discovering more about Japanese culture. And then even back in New York, this visit was so, such a great insight into another part of Japanese culture you wanted to learn more about and then brought you back to Yamanaka, the real rural area of Ishikawa, and then kind of fell in love with that area. And all your amazing connections from there, like working in a sake factory and uh, growing your own rice and everything. So I want to dive into that a little bit more. There's so much that you've experienced. Sure. Well, I mean, at the time when I first came to Yamanaka, um, I was already a food writer and food stylist. So um, food styling is probably not that familiar to most people. It's it's cooking the food for photo shoots and making it look beautiful for the camera. To When, when you see a f photo in a cookbook, it probably took five or six people to make. The food stylist, their assistant who's helping with the cooking, a prop stylist who's setting the scene, and a photographer and probably they have assistants too and maybe there's a creative director so there's a lot of people that and a lot of roles that go into making those images then also I was a food writer and very interested in writing more about Japanese food I had in mind that someday I wanted to do a cookbook and I was trying to figure out what that cookbook might be so um you know as I mentioned I, I saw working in Shimoki-san's sake bar called Angawa as a way to learn more about sake and therefore a very specific part of Japan's food culture. 
what I realized once I was working in the bar and I started to get to know artisans who are making tableware, farmers, hunters, people who are involved with the production of all these different elements of the food was that if I wanted to tell a story about Japanese food, I couldn't just do it with recipes. I needed to talk about how everything gets to the table. Yeah. Um, you, you say that in your book, um, because this is not primarily a cookbook, I had the freedom to use recipes for storytelling and documentation of local culture. The suko, a pickle made from red tower stems and soy sauce pickled wasabi greens, might not be practical to make if you live outside Japan, but they tell you something important about how food is tied to landscape and lifestyle. Your writing is so beautiful, so enjoyable to read that. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was very freeing to not have to think of recipes just as practical. I mean, I think there are different kinds of cookbooks and different ways of using recipes. So yeah, my book is really a collection of essays on different people and the things that they're making that's all sort of tied together into one narrative. Um, I really think of it as like a portrait of Yamanaka as that main character. Um, and there is a recipe at the end of each chapter. And, um, you know, it's not Japanese cooking 101. So the recipes didn't necessarily have to be super practical. If you had access to the ingredients, they, they should be easy to follow and make. But I think recipes can also serve another purpose, which is archiving um, archiving and documenting and that they can also be part of storytelling. I mean, I was really thinking of them as part of the narrative and not just um, instructions. There are a few in there though, that should be easy to like anywhere in the world. I wanted a few things where people could experience, like even if they can't travel to Yamanaka to make some of the things they were reading about in the book. So like the midnight fried chicken, the karaage recipe and the onigiri, those should be very accessible. Good. Um, I know there's a lot of interest internationally and you actually talk about uh, buying Japanese foods and growing up with Japanese culture in Seattle. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? That's beautiful. Yeah, I grew up in a small town outside of Seattle called North Bend, which um, anybody who remembers the Twin Peaks TV show, the opening credits to that show, that's my hometown. <laughs> and so actually when I was a kid, there were um, a lot of buses of Japanese tourists coming through to take pictures of the mountain and the cafe from that movie um, because Twin Peaks was really popular in Japan. Um, but of course, the, so the connection between the Pacific Northwest and Japan goes back much further. Um, North Bend is about uh, 40 minutes east of Seattle in this old logging town. Um, Seattle has a very old Japan town because around the same time that Japan was opening its borders at the beginning of the Meiji era, um, the Western United States was a place where there, there were railroads being built. Um, the logging industry was beginning. And so there was a lot of labor needed. So young Japanese men looking to make their fortune and then go home or learn English and then bring that back as a skill in this sort of new inter international global trade world that Japan was entering would come to the Pacific Northwest and many of them stayed. So um, aspects of Japanese culture have 
become part of the culture of the Pacific Northwest. I think where like the East Coast, New York or Boston, you really feel the um, European influence. Um, While, of course, that is present in the Pacific Northwest, I think you have feel much more of the influence from Asia and all the different groups of Asian immigrants that have come over the years. So um, Japanese gardens and even the architecture, there are a lot of sort of elements of Japanese style. So even in my small town, like we could get yakisoba and udon in the supermarket. And those were things that my mother made. So yeah, whenever people ask me when I became interested in Japan, it's very hard to pinpoint because there were a lot of things that were sort of present that perhaps sparked my interest. Interesting. Um, I grew up in Hawaii, so I can identify very similar. (laughs) Uh, Grew up with Japanese food, Japanese culture. We learned obon odori, Japanese bon dancing in elementary school. I mean, Japanese culture is so embedded. And you talk a little bit about um, Japanese Americans and Japanese internment camps, but yet how embedded the culture um, was for you growing up and getting books from Kinokuniya Bookstore uh, and learning about Japanese artists. I mean, you've got a really amazing background. I'm showing pictures from your Instagram here. Um, Here, I can't. Oh, there it is. Um, from New York, where you can cook Japanese food, from Seattle, where Japanese Americans um, make these beautiful New Year's feasts, all traditional Japanese food. So it shows you that there really are connections, even in Washington, even in New York, with real Japanese culture and Japanese cuisine. And I'm sure your experience in Ishikawa and then going back and forth, you've made even more connections as you learn more about Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And the, the well, for me, the other connection I really felt with Yamanaka in particular was the landscape. It's the the climate and geography is so, so similar to the Pacific Northwest. Um, being in the mountains, but near the sea and having all this, the intersection of all these different microclimates, like farmland and forest and ocean. And so the rich source of ingredients from all these different microclimates. Um, and I really felt that there's something about rural culture, like not just the visual landscape, but also rural culture that, um, you know, in spite of, of course, American culture and Japanese culture being different, it, the, the ruralness was another connection point for me. It felt very familiar. It felt sort of like coming home after almost a decade of being in New York, <laughs> coming to Yamanaka really felt like, oh, right, this, this is my kind of place. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about since you're talking about rural, let's talk a little bit about farming, because you tried to grow your own rice. Um, Tell us a bit about that. What was that like? Is it hard? I've heard from farmers that it's pretty tough. (laughs) Sure. Well, it's it's so often said that Japan is a rice culture. But what does that really mean? I mean, you can read about the idea that rice has been and rice agriculture has been so important to shaping uh, values and etiquette and all sorts of things. But um, I thought, you know, okay, I get that intellectually, but I still don't feel that connection to rice or what that really means. And so um, there are a number of people here in Yamanaka who are growing rice naturally 
which is both sort of the new trend and the old fashioned way. Of course, like industrial agriculture was introduced to, to Japan in particular only very recently. Um, but which I mean, I guess in the last hundred years or less um, that that has really been adopted. So um, you, yeah, you I, talk about that in your in your book and introduce the area in that way. How um, because this area is so remote that they actually held on to more traditional ways a bit longer, and then now this is one of the assets of the area that, that yeah. people are visiting to seek out because other ways have moved on. But now in sustainability, we often talk about that. We need to go back. We need to go back to the traditional ways. So you're kind of in an area where they have continu continued these traditional ways, which actually work better now that we need to live more sustainably. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look like in Kaga is the sort of broader area that Yamanaka is in. So if you in the, like in the plains of Kaga, there's people are using um, more what's now considered conventional agriculture, using machines um, and chemicals. Agriculture, I mean, industrial chemicals. Everything's a chemical. Water's a chemical, but uh, industrially produced. Um, fertilizers and pesticides and things like that, which, I mean, it's understandable because rice agriculture is really physically demanding. And so you can understand why people are like, great, this makes it easier. <laughs> um, but up in the mountains of Yamanaka, it like, it just wouldn't be practical. You've got these terraced fields set into the mountainside that a machine cannot access. So you kind of have to do things by hand. And, um, the older folks that do know the really traditional ways, I mean, are we're starting to lose so many of them. But I think this area, besides just drawing sort of tourists or writers who want to see those things, I think it draws younger people who are interested in actually living that kind of life. So, um, uh, yeah, I this man named Hayashi-san gave me my own little time tiny tambo, a little rice patty. Um, I just think I describe it as about the size of like three queen beds to give you so, sort of a visual. And I did everything from um, planting the seedlings all the way through um, threshing, threshing the rice. And it really did give me a totally different feeling about rice. Like, I did not want a single grain of that rice <laughs> wasted because I had worked so hard for it. And it's just so beautiful. I mean, when you're out there weeding and noticing the insects, the birds, um, the different wildflowers every week when you go to tend the field, like the landscape is slightly different. And Hayashi-san talks about the rice paddy being like a bridge between humans and nature. So beautiful. Yeah. And when I've when I've met uh, rice farmers or farmers in general, yeah, they often say that they do grow organic rice, but only for their family, and that to make a living, they feel like they have to use the chemicals, they have to use the machinery, the pesticides to make the volume that they need to make a living on. Um, but that idea that they do value the organic or traditional way and they do really value and we volunteered mm -hmm. for a day and I, I understand what you mean it's hard work right and then yeah. you do you value rice so much more and then your experience you went on to make sake so then 
of course, you value good quality rice when making sake as well. And I, I'm yeah. showing a picture here where you're uh, using the straw from sake and making New Year's decorations. So the byproducts from the, the rice industry is so connected to local culture and yeah. Japanese culture and tradition and events, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, the harvesting festival, the planting festival. So when I first came to Japan, like you maybe, I had no idea all the amazing connections that rice has to Japanese culture, traditions, and heritage. Powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, should we talk about your experience making sake? Sure, I would love to talk about that. Do you have some specific questions or um, like how did you get started and, and sure. what was it like? What kinds of jobs were you doing? Tell us the whole nine yards. Sure, <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, I think Japan often has this reputation as being uh, very closed to outsiders and outsiders could actually just mean doesn't necessarily mean a foreigner. It's like somebody not from that town or that area. <laughs> But um, really, I think what's more accurate is that relationships and um, uh, that opportunities and access are so much based on trust and relationships. So when I first came to Yamanaka um, and didn't know anybody, maybe I would not have so many opportunities. But working in the sake bar, I got to know all these different people in the community. And like once I worked with one person for a chapter in my book and we developed trust, then that would open the next door too. So it was actually the woodturner Takehito Nakajima who um, vouched for me to the sake brewery. And because of that, the sake brewer, Matsura-san, was willing to take a chance on having having me come work in his sakagura and write about it. So um, as much as possible for my book, I really wanted to either apprentice to people or work for them or like follow them for an extended period of time so that I was really getting to find a story in their work and, and get to know their character and how they are in, in the world, not just what they might tell me in a short interview. So uh, yeah, he, when I showed up the first day, he gave me a set of white boots and a jacket with the Shishino Sato insignia on it. And I was part of the team from that day and got to go through every step of the process from, you know, weighing and washing the rice through making koji and the shubo, which is like the, um, the it's, it literally translates to sake mother. I think of it as sort of like a sourdough starter for sake. <laughs> and then you add that to a bigger tank and add more koji, water and rice, and that's the mash or moromi. So then fermenting that and um, some of my favorite jobs were, oh, I think I forgot to mention yeast, obviously, as part of that starter too. So some of my favorite jobs were um, cultivating the yeast in a little lab and then also doing analysis in what was, it reminded me of like a high school chemistry lab. And I really loved sciences and in high school and sort of, you know, I chose the path of art, but science is in my heart too <laughs> so um i loved that job of like take taking samples from all the different moromi the mash as it was fermenting and testing um the level of sugar and acidity and, and all these different things so that matsura-san could chart 
the course of how the fermentation was going and make adjustments to to get the sake to turn out how he wanted it to. And um, I mean, sake making, Nihonshu, so um, for those listeners that aren't as familiar with, with sake, sake literally just means alcohol in Japan, though outside of Japan we, or in English, we tend to use it to mean Nihonshu, which is sake made in Japan or Japanese spirits. So um, I tend to kind of use them interchangeably just so if people notice I'm saying Nihonshu or sake, I mean, I mean, you know, this Japanese made rice beverage. <laughs> um, but yeah, Nihonshu is so much a combination of poetry and science, the process of making it. And that was just enchanting. And so much of I've heard, which I didn't realize over the years, but talking to people in the sake industry about how important it is to keep the right temperature at certain times. So there are yes. certain times of year where it's much more intense than mm-hmm. other times. Did you like follow the whole process or were you? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I worked for what the season for sake brewing unless you have an enormous temperature controlled warehouse, the season is winter. So at Matsuda, at Matsuda-san's place for Shishino Sato, it's November through April. And actually most of the, the brewing is winding down by April. But the process of, of making like one batch of sake is actually much faster. Um, I guess it kind of depends, but um, like um, I want to say like closer to a month for each one. So what you end up with is like one batch layering over another, over another, over another. So you've, you've got them in all these different phases. So like the middle of the winter, you've got many, many vats all fermenting at the same time and in d- different stages of fermentation. So that's when, that's when the work is, is very intense. We, we visited a miso factory the other day, a traditional miso factory. Oh, wow. And I, I got to, we got to go into the Koji room and, you know, the smell and we even tasted it and stuff. And everybody talks about, about Koji um, as a, one of their ways to get really passionate about sake. And I, I think um, sake miso show you all these traditional trades. There's so many traditional knock-on or connected um, factories or services as well, right? Like in the Miso factory, you've got these wooden barrels, um, which are made by artisans. So did you notice that, how there were so many artisan, traditional craftsmen connections to the sake industry? Um, so... The sakagura that I worked at does doesn't use wooden barrels. That's becoming quite rare, and it also it makes a very particular style of sake. So, um, but you know there are the the spores for the koji come from a particular place. I think there are only about four places left that make those spores that um, that that most sakagura use, and um, the connection. So, I mean, part of what I wanted to uncover in my book was not just one particular, like, here's this amazing craftsman over here, and here's this other amazing craftsman over there, but, like, how are they part of a culture and a community? So, I I mentioned before Takehito Nakashima, the woodturner, so he is, like, made a particular cup that's, like, meant to suit that local sake, and then that's the sake that everyone is buying and drinking for the big festival in the fall so 
um, yeah, it was connected through the community in, all, in a lot of different ways. From your book, which is so beautiful, I want to read, the tension between tradition and modernization is a struggle throughout the world. Look at debates about marriage equality in the U.S. or France's wine regulation about regions and grapes. In Japan, where traditional culture is part of national identity, if not a big part of most people's lives, and industrialization came late, and with great force, the juxtaposition and collision of new and old is particularly clear. Mm -hmm. It's not always a conflict in the sake brewery where I worked, both praying at a Shinto shrine and using scientific lab equipment are daily activities. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, I think when we talk about tradition, a lot of the time we think about something from the past and preserving something and keeping it the same. But one of the things that Nakashima-san, the woodturner, pointed out to me is tradition, like the th we're making things now. He's making things now that he hopes will be considered traditional 100 years from now. And the things that we think are traditional now, they were new at some point. So you know, tra tradition, it's, it's kind of a complicated word, and it's actually something that is always evolving. And part of what I learned in documenting all these different crafts and farming and hunting and activities in, in Yamanaka was, um, of course, there are these really special things we want to preserve, but there's, they also need to change to be part of modern life. And so how, how do you, this is, I think, an ongoing question that in their work, almost everybody is somehow struggling with, is how do you hold on to what is valuable about a tradition, what makes it special, um, its unique identity, while also evolving it and perhaps dropping the parts that we think differently about now. Let's talk about Nakajima-san because you, sure. I'm showing his Instagram page right now. He makes absolutely stunning woodwork. It's just un unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. It's like a combination of wood and glass in beautiful colors and textures. Oh, I see. What, those are some of his new work that oh actually is resin. Yes. Yeah. And you, you had a workshop with him. Um, tell mm -hmm. us about that experience. So that was actually during that first stay in Yamanaka while I was working at Shimoki-san's bar. Nakashima-san was is a frequent guest there, and Shimoki-san was so proud to introduce him as this woodturner that he thought like should be considered a national treasure and is just doing incredible work. And so... When, uh, Nakashima san invited me to come and actually like see a demonstration in his workshop and try it myself. So at the time, I honestly was like, I don't know, I had never really thought about wanting to do wood turning. It sounded kind of scary, like using a blade on a spinning hunk of wood. And I had a particular interest in it. But the things that he made were so beautiful. They were somehow like just a simple sake cup, it felt like a work of art. And I think people use that hyperbolically a lot of the time to just mean something that's really refined. But what I mean is it like it had an emotional impact in a way that a great painting or dance can. And 
Um, so I was, I was really curious and he kind of has this like bad boy, uh, exterior <laughs> that I, so I was like, who is this, this guy who seems so tough and yet he's making these like super delicate, emotionally moving cups and bowls and would wouldn't wear. So, um, yeah, it started with just one, uh, lesson took me about four hours to make a sake cup that would take him about 10 minutes. <laughs> but I was totally hooked. And he was excited too, because I was much better at it than he expected. I mean, I, I studied art. I grew up on a farm where like using tools and making things was very normal. Like that was like a lot of our play, like our toys were tools, like go, go nail a piece of wood to another piece of wood. Like that's a pretty fun game for a kid. <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, I don't think it was like that special that I took to it, but um, but we were I guess we were both excited that like it went better than expected, and I thought it was really fun. So that ended up leading to many more lessons in his workshop, um, and over time, um, yeah, getting to actually become really good friends and get to learn a lot about the way that he thinks about his work and, and how he works too. Yes. Um, you're, you're also showing on your Instagram a wooden ring, like a cross two fingers, which he makes. So he, Oh yeah, he makes gorgeous. these wooden brass knuckles. <laughs> Astounding. And on his Instagram, he also has your book and uh, his- Yeah, that's his bowl on the covers. So. Okay. Great. He was excited to share that. Yeah. yeah. Do you know about his recent work? Is it glass and wood together? It just looks it's, amazing. It's resin. It's resin. So um, it's actually, he's um, pouring, like taking these pieces of wood and combining them with resin in a mold and then turning that on the lathe the same way he would turn a piece of wood. But um, yeah, then it's got these like translucent blues strips in the wood um yeah so he sort of has two lines of work now that's his more contemporary one and then also making um more standard pieces just with with wood wow that's but his stuff is subtle you know for all these different kinds of woodenware there's there's a standard shape there are these standard shapes of sake cups there's a standard oan miso soup bowl and um there are other sort of standard things that wood turners make like a uh, tea canisters for a tea ceremony or incense boxes so um a lot of the things that he makes they're they're very subtly unconventional like a bowl that doesn't have the little foot on the bottom um and just has this very graceful arc that's it's it's subtle how they're different from the standard but also yeah very very unconventional and beautiful but i appreciate that he always considers practicality because i think sometimes when people are trying to push the boundaries of the craft they make something that's not actually enjoyable to use and I can vouch for his his sake cups and and Oan being very pleasant to hold and sip from. 
I, I feel like that when I see a very rich, not rich or modern chic type of house and everything is metal and I'm like, yeah, but I wouldn't want to live there. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't be comfortable. Like when I see things that are made of wood or things that are made of pottery, I feel like the warmth of nature. I feel that connection and I, I want to use it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But even in wood and pottery, I think sometimes when people try to push the boundaries, they push it in such a way that it's like, well, if it's not a useful object, then just make art. <laughs> but if it's going to be a craft, it's, I think it should, it should um, serve its functional purpose well, too. And that's, I mean, I, I think a lot of creative people thrive on um, limitations. And so I think that's actually a very lim- interesting limitation. How do you make something that is um, still very useful, but also beautiful. And um, can it convey some kind of meaning too? Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I wonder if um, in your experience with all these young entrepreneurs and innovators, they're, they're using traditional techniques, they're going back to the rural areas. Do you, do you get the sense that they feel a bit more free to try new things than, for example, the master that they're learning from might feel? Well, I think Mika Horie is a good example of that. I don't know if you can pull up some images of, of her work too. Um, so she's she has, uh, I think if you look up, if people wanna look up Mika Horie on Instagram, they can see her work or she has a website too. So she, She's she makes paper. She makes handmade paper from gumpy fibers that grow in the mountain. While some other almost all of Japan's washi, the Japanese paper is made from um, indigenous uh, shrubs. But gumpy is the only one that you is really really difficult to cultivate. So you need to harvest it in the mountains. So she makes paper from gumpy that she harvests in the mountains around her studio here in Yamanaka, and then she she prints her photographs on it. So she would really consider herself a photographer or an artist more than a paper maker. She, she says that she's an artist, not an artisan. And she actually chose Yamanaka. She's from Kyoto originally. She chose Yamanaka because um, it's not a paper town. It's, it's a very interesting craft area, but it's not paper is not their main thing. If she was in a place like Echizen in Fukui where paper making is is the craft they're known for she would be obligated to join an artisan's guild and follow a certain way of making paper um you know making thousands of sheets that are exactly the same and fit certain specifications but actually what she's interested in is finding variation in the paper and um and then how the paper the texture of the paper itself interplays with the images she prints on it, which she she does cyanotypes, so it's it's um, brushing the paper with uh, a liquid iron salts and then putting a negative over it or putting like pieces of plant matter or whatever on top of the paper and exposing it in the sunshine. So her whole process is very very connected to the landscape and the elements. Using water from the stream that runs past her house to make paper with the shrubs from the mountain and then exposing the images with the sunlight. But um, yeah, she would definitely consider herself an artist and not a not a craftsperson. Well, that's really even though she's doing a traditional craft. Yeah, 
I I feel that um, for some people, like you said, in in more traditional areas, they would feel more pressure to stick to the traditions, right? So moving yeah. moving to somewhere where she felt free to do what she wanted to do in the way she wanted to do it. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah even Nakashima-san with his, his wooden cups and bowls, like there are definitely, I think, some people that would prefer that he sort of like stays in his lane a little bit more as an artisan and just makes the things he's supposed to and isn't, isn't sort of trying to also be an artist or put, push the boundaries of that craft too. I think that is a struggle for him. Well, maybe it's not a struggle for him. He doesn't mind that it, that, that it <laughs> pisses some people off. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, I often come across this, right? Um, there are people who are not appreciated in Japan for trying to do something a little bit different from the traditional, right? Like pushed, kind of out like we don't want that here that's that's too strange too different yayoi kusama is a, a great example right like she was not appreciated in japan she was very appreciated in new york and then japan's like come back we love you now you know <laughs> so sometimes that outside inside view on japanese culture and accepting the variations accepting uh, change in traditions. It's that outside influence or the outside view of it sometimes can be very supportive for people you know, trying to push the, the line a little bit, right? Uh, yeah, I, I would say also, though, Yamanaka is in some ways a very traditional, though I have issues with that word, and a very traditional and, and sort of conservative place. But on the other hand, and I think this can be true of a lot of small towns, it's a place where people that are kind of outsiders really thrive. Um, Moriguchi-san, who's also in the book, he carves these wooden trays called wagatabon, which um, they're these hand-carved tr chestnut trays with ridges in them. And it's a craft from this area that that is not as venerated as the wood turning, but um, and was almost lost and he kind of revived it. But one day he, he turns to me and he says, I like Yamanaka because there's a lot of weird people here, like me and you, Hannah. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, for all it's being sort of conventional and these crafts having rigid parameters that it's also kind of accepting of the people pushing those parameters. And, um, and it does seem to attract a lot of people who are kind of quirky or on their own path too and I don't I don't know that that's so uncommon in rural places I mean my hometown I think was a little bit like that too well, that's good that's so good to hear um sometimes you know like I get frustrated by uh people saying don't do it like this or do it like that and there's a lack of lack of flexibility and for me even as a longtime Japanese resident there's no way that I can do it in the traditional way, please allow me to, you know, change it a little bit. And then to meet people who, even in the rural areas, they still feel that pressure sometimes. Um, so it's so great if people can accept differences. And I, I think what you said about a lot of wacky people and people accepting that, and that, that makes you feel a part of the community. Uh, you appreciate what's there you have a vision for something else and people maybe accept it maybe don't accept it but they don't treat you badly because you're trying i think that that's kind of the key for me is to kind of 
keep a little bit open mind. Like there's a reason why I want to try it this way, you know, for yeah, you know, Shimoki son, the bar owner said that he feels that um, he, he grew up in Yamashiro, which is one town over, and he feels like Yamanaka is more accepting of people trying new things. So that was actually why he opened one of the reasons why he opened his bar here is he felt like um, there's space for people to do new things. I have this theory that part of that is um, Yamanaka's hot spring, the onsen, has like more than 1300 years of history or about at least according to the scroll in the Buddhist temple that tells the town's history. Um, and in all of that time, on and off, it has been a destination for travelers. So like you used to have merchant seamen coming in from their ships, you know, the ports of Hashidate and Shioya, these traders would dock and then come up to the mountains to the hot spring to relax for a few weeks. It became known as this place for healing and, and relaxation. But well, like, for example, those those um, merchant seamen who would come in, they would sing songs that they had learned in very, you know, the far north and south of Japan with the bath attendants and those that becomes sort of part of the local folk music. You had the famous poet Basho coming here and writing haiku, and, and the town's, of course, very proud of that. And um, you had uh, monks coming from other places, from Kyoto, because the hot spring was also sort of considered spiritual. Um, so even though the town is very isolated, it's always actually been a place for cultural exchange, and the onsen is sort of like a center of that. In the book, you talk about the history of tourism and how um, small towns in Japan have a tight-knit community that looks after each other, which can be both a blessing and a burden. Yamanaka seems to be uniquely welcoming of new people and ideas. It has a 1,300-year history of tourism because of its hot spring. So it also always benefited from cultural exchange and demographic change. It will continue to evolve, hopefully keeping the best of its tradition while reinventing them for the future. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really feel like that is very just drawn from, you know, observing and listening to how people are thinking about it here. So Kano-san, the, the head monk of Iyoji Temple, described the onsen as a salon or a, a, historically as like a salon where people would come to exchange culture and ideas. So, and as we talked about before, I mean, I think that people are really continuing to evolve these traditions they work with. And part of that certainly is, is including women more and more. One of the things um, you talked about is doing learning tea ceremony and how mm -hmm. that helped to make you other connections and learn more traditions. Yeah, I, I, it was another opportunity that happened early on while I was working in the sake bar. Um, one of the guests who owns Megetsuro, this uh, eel restaurant, invited me to join her for a tea ceremony lesson. So I thought, okay, sure, why not? Um, and then ended up going almost every week after that. I'm actually still continuing the tea ceremony lessons. And I sort of saw it at first as like etiquette training and training in some sort of grace, I think as a 
foreigner, I often feel very clumsy and large in Japan. And I don't mean just physically large. I think that Americans take up a lot more space with our presence. Um, we tend to not have as much awareness of um, the people around us, the space around us, uh, just the way that, the ways that we're taking up space. So um, at first, I, I saw it as an opportunity to uh, maybe get a little bit more grace. And even if I didn't, you know, I'm always going to be myself, even if I don't fully adopt those things to sort of learn it. Um, so it was very help helpful in that practical sense, learning to sit seiza and learning to hold a cup with two hands, um, how to open and close a door gracefully, not, you know, rattling it off the track or slamming it into the edge. But um, the more than that, it was really, um, you know, tea ceremony has roots in Zen Buddhism and um, whether it's tea ceremony that's sort of become part of the broader culture or whether both are manifestations of certain ideas from Zen Buddhism, like the that, that you're always on a path that like tea, we call it tea ceremony in English, but the the more literal translation of, of chado or sado is tea path, right? So it's a path you're always on. You don't finish learning. You're not, you don't just become an expert and then you've mastered it. Um, or just handling all your tools with respect and care and love. Um, that if you do something with a sense of purpose, no matter how small that thing is, that it, it gives it more meaning or it changes your relationship to the activity. You, you have a beautiful uh, quote from your book. Um, this is a Zen Buddhist idea. Even the smallest, most meaning, menial task is an important opportunity to engage with attention and care. I learned it from tea ceremony. Yeah, beautiful. But you also... Yeah, it was something I really saw everywhere, though. I mean, in Shimoki-san's bar when I first came, like, I the very first day I was washing a water glass and noticed, oh, this little chip in the glass had been repaired with gold leaf. Like, you don't throw it away, you make it more special. Or, you know, in the sakagura, I mean, so much of what we do, so much of making sake is actually cleaning. You're Every day you're washing the bags that the rice was soaked in, you're washing the cloth that was in this, the um, vat where the rice was steamed, you're washing equipment, you're cleaning the space. And, um, you know, the boss is right there with everybody else doing that work. And it's not uh, a lesser task. It's, it's just as important as, like, making the koji or anything else that we do in the sakagura. Um, that's so important. And uh, that's something that comes up a lot, right? Taking pride in your work having a good work ethic, it all kind of goes back to this appreciation of time and uh, staying in the moment, no matter what you're doing, where you're, where you are, right? Uh, yeah. connected, connected to tea ceremony a little bit is your love of wagashi, which of course I really share. I love wagashi. Yeah. It's vegan. It's healthier than uh, Western cakes. I've got loads of your beautiful pictures of wagashi from your Instagram. Can you tell us a little bit about wagashi? Sure. So, yeah, wagashi are Japanese sweets that are usually made from, yeah, the, as you mentioned, the ingredients tend to just 
naturally be vegan, like uh, gelatins made, gelatin type things made from seaweed, um, uh, azuki beans as a big ingredient, uh, rice flour, rice powder, um, pounded rice, um, starches from fern roots, and, and the flavors tend to be very subtle. And some would say, the flavors don't change a lot. It's really a lot of a lot of the appeal of wagashi is is the the aesthetic, um, and usually they're made to reflect the season in some way. So sometimes that's um, including seasonal ingredients like chestnuts in the fall. I have a recipe for kuriyokan, which is like a uh, azuki jelly with with chestnuts in it, um, and then often it's it's actually an aesthetic reflection of the season so like making something into a shape of whatever the flower is that might be blooming in the mountain during that season so and they're just so beautiful it like you were making your own kinako as well for uh, for a I? cooking lesson or something and then oh you, yeah i did, did i did a wagashi lesson a and all the ago. intricate design and everything beautiful i love it yeah there are two recipes in the book that that come from um, or that have some element from the wagashi shop in Yamanaka called Sankaido. Um, that's a third generation shop. Well, actually, now it's the father and daughter. So he's the second and she is the third generation. So I, I, I worked with them for a few months, actually, um, to you know, coming in a few days a week for a couple of hours, and they let me help out with things just to learn learn a bit about how they work. And then um, they that kuriyokan recipe in the book is their their recipe that they taught me. Cool. And quite so, often, and it's... oh my gosh, their Instagram is beautiful too. Oh, so, I didn't Sankaido find it yet. We'll just, have to put the link it's below. So pretty. Um, yeah. Another <laughs> another great uh, thing about wagashi, it's vegan, naturally vegan. It's also naturally gluten free most of the time. Um, because right. everything is made from rice or beans. There, there isn't the, the flour issue that a lot of people have when they That's visit. Right. Although there are some really neat, like innovative wagashi um, chefs who are, who are combining like a Western patissier with um, wagashi and doing some really beautiful things too. Yeah, great. Um, you also have a love for tenegui as a reuse wrapping, and I love tenegui. Can you tell us about your passion for tenegui a little bit? Sure. So tenegui, you know, it's this length of cloth that's unhemmed at both ends, and it's it, it can be a hand towel, it can be a headscarf, it can be a tea towel. It's very multi-purpose, and actually there's a reason it's unhemmed, which is it makes it dry much faster than something with a hem. Um, and they come in all these beautiful prints. And um, yes, of course, I love the the interesting textiles. And they're also so useful. I always travel with one now because you can use it to wrap food. It can, um, you know, if you need to tie your hair back to do some work, it can be that. Um, it can be a napkin. It's very, very versatile uh, reusable item. Great. Um, and so now you're ending the winter season. Um, what, what kind of uh, scenery do you see around you now? I've got your pictures from your website of beautiful snow covered forests and everything. What are you seeing around your area? 
Well, it's starting to thaw a bit in Yamanaka now. Um, in the town, the snow is mostly gone. We had a really big snow in January and then actually like a foot of snow about a week ago. But now it's starting to thaw. We're seeing the first Fukinoto, which is one of the first Sansai mountain vegetables you get to pick in the spring, these little neon green uh, buds that come out, shoots that come out of the ground. And I love this sort of I spy game of looking for those in the landscape. Like they're just a little bit brighter than every other green. Um, so now when I go for a walk or a jog, I'm looking for those. Although I keep finding like, one or two like not enough to actually make anything so we're we're a little bit away from that season starting but um yesterday I went up in, in the woods for a hike with a friend and we needed snowshoes so like as soon as you go up into the mountains out of town there's still quite a bit of snow here so I see people other places in Japan posting pictures of all the mountain vegetables they're harvesting but we're not quite there yet yeah, and uh, it looks like autumn is really beautiful. What's your favorite season there? Oh, gosh. Well, I I think part of what I love here is getting to live so close to the seasons and seeing them change. Um, the seasons really aren't just, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, but all these little micro-seasons. Um but in general, wherever I am in the world, I think that spring and fall are my favorite seasons. Yeah, me, me too. Not too hot, <clears throat> not me. too cold. That's, that's, that's right. my perfect season. Um, yeah, so yeah. we have just a few more minutes. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is, is really uh, nice to introduce to people? Looking forward to your book coming out next sure. month? Sure. I think, I mean, I hope that my book will provide some vicarious travel for people who are pretty much stuck at home right now. Um, and I hope that they will fall in love with Yamanaka as much as I have. But also what I wish for is that um, they'll think about what are the things that make their own local culture unique and special. Um I think that if you look closely and pay that kind of attention, almost anywhere can be really interesting. So while I was talking very specifically about the culture of Yamanaka, I think that a lot of the kinds of observations and themes are really ap applicable anywhere. And a lot of my experiences here would not be re replicable without spending years getting to know people. But, um, but you know, maybe there's somewhere that each reader has a connect that kind of connection to and they can they can experience whatever is their special local culture too i think that's so wonderful about tourism and travel in general is that once you experience new things new people new places and then you come home and you're like actually where i live is kind of interesting too and this you know yeah kind of notice new things around where you came from and where you grew up and you didn't see before because it was just part of the everyday and then you yeah, step definitely. away from it have a new perspective it's kind of special this has all given me more appreciation of my hometown too yeah. do you do you think in the future you're going to be going back and forth kind of half and half between america and japan still or what's um, what's your plan 
Well, I just got a house in Yamanaka, a uh, Kominka that I'm beginning to work on renovating. So, you know, hopefully in the future, that's primarily where I'll be living. But there's a lot that uh, I still have to figure out to make that work. So we'll see. Well, renovation of an old house is so exciting. So good luck with it's that. Very and uh, hopefully we can talk to you in a, again in a month's time when your book comes out. Um, I have a chance to read new parts that we didn't have a chance to talk about today. And uh, you can also tell us about your home renovation. That would be fun. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Sure. I, I think also that we maybe forgot, we keep saying the book, but it's Water, Wood, and Wild Things yes. if people want to find it. And it's available for pre-order now. <laughs> I'm showing it on, on screen right now. Oh, okay. And okay. Uh, well, for people please, listening to the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Version. We'll put a link yeah. below <laughs> and uh, check out Hannah's uh, website, hannahkirchner.com. And then you have a great following and beautiful photos on Instagram. You're also on Twitter. Um, so we'll look forward to your updates there and best of luck with the launch of the books. Very exciting. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, so fun. And uh, everybody, thanks for joining today. And tomorrow 9am, we're t talking with Justin Velgus. And uh, we have more sustainable tourism, travel, and lots of interesting things to talk about. So please join us again tomorrow. Thank you so much, Hannah. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Take care. See you tomorrow. Bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You can find out more information about me at inboundambassador.com. And have a look at buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh if you want some bonus material and to support the work that I'm doing. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.